We have been looking in this very doctrinal part of the epistle at what Paul has to say about the person and the work of Christ. This part of Colossians is really to do with the Christian and his Christ. We have here a description of the truth concerning the Saviour. And last time, we focused upon the subject of who He is. Uh, There are five great things, really, that the Lord is identified by here. In verse 13 of chapter 1, He's called His dear Son. Or as it is in the margin of the authorised version, the Son of His love. His dear Son. We made the point that the Lord, according to John 17, loves His people in the very same way that He loves Christ. And that's an amazing truth. His dear Son. We learned also in verse 15 about how that Christ is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word there is a word you might have heard of, even in English, icon. The image, it means a precise copy or an exact reproduction. When you look at Christ, you're looking at God. He is God manifest in the flesh. All that may be said of God may be said of Christ. All that God is, Christ is. He is the perfect image. He is the visible representation of the invisible God. But Paul goes further than that, as well as speaking about his dear son and the image of the invisible God, he speaks of him as the firstborn of every creature. And we were explaining that cults and isms will often speak of this to justify their false doctrine that Christ is the highest creation of God. He is not. Christ is not a creation. He is the Creator. When it says He is the firstborn of every creature, it is referring to two things, really. His priority. It's not referring to any period of time, but to rank or order of importance. So really what Paul is saying is, That Christ is of first importance. He is of first rank. He is the first. Nothing ever came before him in time. Nothing ever comes before him in order or in rank. No one is above him in dignity, importance or honor. He's the firstborn of every creature. But not only does this refer to his priority, it also speaks of his sovereignty. He is the sovereign Lord of all creation. And as the hymn puts it, far above all is our Savior enthroned. So that's the firstborn of every creature. He's then referred to as the Creator in verse 16 of chapter 1. For by Him were all things created. The ability to create belongs to God alone. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. It is the prerogative of God alone to create. Only He can create. And according to this scripture, as well as John chapter 1 verse 3, it says of Jesus that all things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And then finally we looked at this great title, the head of the body, the church. 
This really repeats what we read in Ephesians chapter 1. He's the head of the body. That's Colossians 1 verse 18. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are the body of Christ if we're saved. The church derives its life from Christ the head. The body, of course, has its local expression, the local assembly of believers, but it refers to all the people of God in all ages. Christ is the head of the body. So the deity of Christ is really emphasized here. But as I said in another message, that the person of Christ and the work of Christ are inextricably linked together. And Paul shows us that in Colossians chapter 1. Because he not only speaks here about who Christ is and all of those wonderful titles, but also what Christ has done. What has he done? Well, some of the greatest blessings of grace are set forth in these verses. And I want you to note with me tonight, uh, God willing, what Christ has done for all of his people. In the first place, look again at verse 13. We did mention this Previously, but I want to dwell a little more upon this. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. In this we have the privilege that he has provided for his people. The privilege he has provided for his people. Now remember, these are matters for which the Christian believer should give thanks. It's in that context of verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father for these following things. The Christian should be thankful. Thankful for the fact that the Lord has delivered us. The word signifies rescued from danger. And in this case, from the power of darkness. The picture here really is of a great military commander delivering a captive or a subjugated people out of their captivity and bringing them back to a place of freedom and liberty. Christ is the great emancipator. And this, of course, is a spiritual picture. If you consider with me the words of Acts chapter 26, there the Apostle Paul is speaking about this work of Christ, Acts 26 from verse 16, he has given this commission, Rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Now look at this, verse 18. To open their eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. The devil is the prince of darkness who has sinful men and women held captive at his will. They are in bondage to him. Now, people are not aware of that. People don't think that that's true. 
People think they're free, they do whatever they want to do. But the Bible tells us in Second Timothy chapter 2 that men and women are held captive by Satan at his will. They're in bondage to their sin and to Satan. And if we go back to the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, there's a verse I want to show you there. Luke chapter 22 and verse 53. If I have the right scripture. Yes, Luke 22 verse 53. Jesus said, When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The power of darkness. The Lord voluntarily was going to allow himself to be subjected to the devil's attacks. And we read in Psalm 22 some language that seems strange. Strong bulls of Bashan beset me round. It speaks of the horns of the unicorn and things like that. You might read that and think, what is that talking about? It's talking about satanic activity. It's speaking about the devil's attacks upon Christ. That happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's my considered opinion, and many I've read on this say the same thing, that in the Garden of Gethsemane the devil tried to kill Christ before he got to the cross. He was wrestling there with the powers of darkness. And there came an angel from heaven strengthening him. The devil is the prince of darkness. He has sinners held captive in the bondage of their sins. But Christ, our great commander, bruised Satan's head and delivered the captives. And that's the significance of those words in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 verse 8. In the midst of talking about the gifts of Christ, ministry and so on, he says, Ephesians 4 8, Wherefore he saith, and this is a quotation from the Psalms, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. The idea here was borrowed from Roman generals who would go into a country, they would subjugate the people, and they would get the leaders of the other army, and they would lead them behind in a train of triumph. And as they rode along on their horses, they would throw gifts to the people. The Lord Jesus is the great deliverer of his people. Now the word translated delivered here in Colossians, it sets forth the helpless and hopeless condition of men. They've been delivered. Now, if you're delivered, that means that you can't deliver yourself. Only the Lord could rescue us. And without the intervention of divine mercy, none of us would be saved. Ephesians chapter 2 makes that very clear, doesn't it? And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past... You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We were held captive by the devil, unable to break free of his chains, but Jesus rescued us. 
A greater power than the power that held us was required to free us. A greater authority than Satan's authority was needed, even Christ. The believer is one, therefore, who has been rescued. But he has also been removed. Verse 13 speaks of us being translated. The word I explained has to do with the repatriation of people. Look at it again, chapter 1, verse 13. And hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. What does that mean? Moved from one place to another. Repatriated. Transferred, if you like, into the kingdom of Christ. Brought from the realm of darkness into the realm of light and gospel liberty. That's what's happened to you if you're saved. This is what the Lord has done for you. And as I have indicated, the idea of translation here is that of the wholesale transportation of peoples. There is a scripture in the Old Testament that illustrates that. We'll not turn there, but it's 2 Kings chapter 24, from verse 14 to 16. Speaking of people being repatriated, if you like. Sinners saved by Christ have been transplanted from slavery into liberty. They've been freed. And this is a once-for-all deliverance. The tense in the original language would suggest this. Verse 13, who hath delivered us. That's a one-time thing. You know, there's no such thing as being born again and again and again and again. Translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. This is what the Lord has done. It's an act of God's grace. As one of our hymns puts it, Satan's slave no longer, now a child of God. And this rescue emphasizes the power of the gospel of Christ. There is no power like the gospel. That is the gospel applied by the Holy Spirit. He delivered us. And being God's work alone, we thank Him. I've never heard anyone in prayer thank the Lord that they chose Him while others didn't. But I've heard many, many people pray and thank the Lord for saving them. Even as the little chorus puts it, thank you Lord for saving my soul. Thank you Lord for making me whole. Thank you Lord for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and so free. It's not Lord, look at me, what a great boy am I. I'm like Jack Horner who, you know, put his finger into the pie and took out a plum and said, what a good boy am I. Salvation is of the Lord. And so the privilege that He has provided for His people, we give thanks for. It's mentioned there in verse 13. But as well as the privilege He has provided for His people, I want you to notice, secondly, the price He has paid for His people. Here's a lovely word in verse 14. Redemption. Redemption. In whom we have redemption through His blood. That's just about a verbatim repeat of Ephesians 1.7. In whom we have redemption through His blood. Even the forgiveness of His sins according to the riches of His grace. And here the marketplace is in view. 
Think of this picture. There's an offended master, a slave owner, who sees the slave who once forsook him and ran away. And that slave deserves death. That was the punishment in those days for a slave running away from his master. But this master is willing to pay the price for that slave to buy him back. And so even though that slave really belongs to him, he has the right of ownership over that slave. Yet he's willing to redeem him. He's willing to buy him back. This is a picture of what Christ our Redeemer has done for us. 1 Timothy chapter 2 speaks of it in this way. In verse number 5. There's one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He paid the ransom for me. Redemption. Believers have been bought. They've been purchased. And that is something that is spoken of throughout the New Testament. I think of the words of Jesus. Mark chapter 10 verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life, what? A ransom for many. A ransom. You see in Acts 20 verse 28, when the elders were gathered before Paul, the elders of Ephesus, Paul said to them, take heed to yourselves. And to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers or bishops. To feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. There it is again. The paying of a price. Again, Paul uses that term in 1 Corinthians 6.20. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Purchased. Redeemed. Then with those lovely words... Of 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, ye were not redeemed with corruptible things. You're bought by the blood. Redemption. Redemption, you see, involves the payment of a ransom to effect a release. And our redemption is our deliverance through the payment of the price, even the price of Jesus' blood. Romans 3.24 refers to this, how that the Lord Jesus Christ, according to that text, God has set him forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And that's a big word, propitiation. The mercy seat that was above the Ark of the Covenant upon which blood was sprinkled was known as the propitiatory. Propitiation is that doctrine which teaches that the blood turns away the wrath or the anger of an offended God. The blood 
propitiates, it also expiates in that it cleanses away sin. But the propitiation is that Godward aspect whereby the blood satisfies the justice of God. And that sort of terminology is also used in Hebrews 9.12. We are sinners as slaves sold under sin. We're bereft of any ability to redeem ourselves. The price is too high. We're absolutely destitute of merit. But Christ the Redeemer steps in. And without any cause or motive in the slave... Christ pays the high ransom price, his own blood. He is our Redeemer. And the price that he has paid for his people is the price of redemption. In our deliverance, Christ brought us out. He brought us out from the tyranny and the thraldom of the devil. But in our redemption, he bought us out. And he made us his own purchased possession believers are a redeemed people freed from the curse and the slavery of sin Christ hath redeemed us Paul said from the curse of the law being made a curse for us because cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree Galatians 3.13 we've been brought into liberty stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage John chapter 8 teaches us whom the Son sets free is free indeed. This is all talking about the same thing. Redemption. The price that he has paid for his people. And then that leads us to the third thing. For the price that he has paid for his people leads us on to think of the pardon he has purchased for his people. Notice that great word in verse 14. It's the word Forgiveness. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the payment of that ransom price to set us free, even the forgiveness of sins. Here is the remission of our sins. One of the greatest statements in the Bible, I believe, is Psalm 103, verse 12. It simply says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Has anyone ever been able to measure the distance between the east and the west? If you were able to fly east and just keep on flying ad infinitum, you would just keep going east. On the other hand, if you were to fly west, and just keep going west. You would just continue into infinity going west. As far as the east is from the west is an incalculable distance. It's so far that it can't be measured. Think about that, believer. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. When we were little, little kids in Sunday school, we used to sing, Gone, 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 yes, my sins are gone. Buried in the deepest sea, 
Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally, praise God. My sins are gone. They're gone. This is forgiveness. And this remission of our sins is on the basis of bloodshedding. You see, Hebrews 9.22 puts it like this. Almost all things are by the law uh, purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no salvation without the shedding of blood. The sacrifice offered for sin. And here the picture moves from the marketplace to God's supreme court of justice. Imagine here the judge and he sits there with that black cap on and he declares that you are guilty as a sinner and that you are without excuse. You've got nothing to say. There is a written record of your guilt. You've broken the law and the sentence of the law stands. And all that remains is for the judge to declare the penalty is now to be visited upon you for the guilt of your law breaking. But when that punishment that you deserve is about to be carried out, the judge takes off that black cap and he puts on white gloves. And he declares that in fact your crimes have been atoned for by a substitute. Your sins have already been paid for by someone else. You're free to go. This is Christ. He has suffered the full penalty announced by the law of God for our sins. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's why He died for us. You're bound to perfectly keep the law. That's why He kept the law perfectly for us. Lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't. Died the death that we should have died but didn't. And so that we can say, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I rest my whole eternity. Christ has purchased pardon for His people. He has suffered the full penalty announced by the law against our sins. And so on the basis of his, of his death, as we trust in that, we are pardoned fully and freely and forever. You know, it's an interesting fact that the word forgive, we're looking at this term forgiveness, the word forgive in the Greek language literally means to cancel or to send away. The cancelling of our sins. The sending away of our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ has cancelled all of our debts. He has removed all of our sins and now there's nothing in the record against us. That's why Paul could write, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's why he could go on in the same chapter of Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. And here's the language of the courtroom. Listen carefully to it. Romans 8, 33. 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge that will stick? Here's the answer. It is God that justifieth. Justification involves the pardon of sin and the imputation of righteousness to the sinner. It goes on. Who is he that condemneth? Here's the answer. It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again. That's the proof that his death was accepted. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also maketh intercession for us. Those for whom he died. He prays for them in glory. He said that in John 17. I pray for them. There's nothing in the record against my name anymore as a believer. I am forgiven. That's why Augustus' top lady was able to write, Payment God cannot quite twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Full atonement thou hast made. And to the utmost thou hast paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place? If sheltered in thy righteousness. How can that happen? If I'm covered and if I'm saved by his blood. Look at the Old Testament. See what it says in the book of Isaiah chapter 43. And verse 25. I love this scripture. God says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. I've spoken before about being in school, particularly in grade school. Now I'm showing my age. They they didn't have whiteboards and all that technology that they have now. When I went into my daughter's teaching, into her classroom, I couldn't believe it, all the stuff that she had to teach the kids. We didn't have that. We had a blackboard and chalk and a duster, which sometimes had a double use. Sometimes the duster used to fly through the air and just narrowly miss one of the kids' heads who wasn't behaving. But these days you'd be arrested for that. Anyway, I do remember this, that sometimes you'd be called to the front to, to do you know, those wonderful things that we used to call sums. Math. You had to multiply something. And I, you would do that you know, with times times and get what the answer was. And if the answer was wrong, the teacher would tell you it's wrong. So what, is, what happens? It just stays there forever? No, no it doesn't. She takes that duster, she rubs it out. Now it's gone. It's like I never made the mistake in the first place. It's gone. It's a very poor illustration, but it is an illustration of what the Lord does with our sins. He blots them out. We can't find them anymore. Isaiah forty-three twenty-five. Then you have Isaiah 44, 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. 
Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. There it is. And then you have Micah, the minor prophet. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. And I guess this is where they got the little chorus from. That the children would sing. About their sins being gone. Micah seven nineteen. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And I will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. I'm glad the Lord has not cast my sins into the shallows where they can be dredged up and they can wash ashore and we can find them. No, they're in the depths of the sea. Never to be seen anymore. This is the pardon he has purchased for his people. And that forgiveness, again, it's on the basis of the ransom being paid. Ephesians 4.32 speaks of that very thing. The ransom being paid, forgiveness being provided. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Remember this. For Christ's sake hath forgiven you. It's a beautiful story that illustrates the grace of God in the Old Testament. It's the story of David and Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was a young man who was picked up by his nurse and she dropped him and he became lame. Was not able to walk any longer. He had had a great fall. He was brought before David the king. Being the son of Jonathan, one whom David had promised he would always show mercy to his house forever. David showed mercy to Mephibosheth, brought him to his own table to eat as one of the king's sons. Sitting at the table, his lame legs would not have been seen. The evidence of his fall would never have been seen. And that young man said, Why would you show the grace of God to such a dead dog as I am? The Bible says that David showed kindness to Mephibosheth for Jonathan, his father's sake. Why does God show mercy to us? It is for the sake of his dear son. And when we're saved, we sit at the king's table as one of his sons and all evidence that we ever fell is hidden. See, when by faith a man receives Christ, he is justified. And our justification before God is on the ground of shed blood. It brings me to the last thought here. As well as thinking about this great truth of the privilege that he's provided for his people and the price that he's paid for his people and the pardon he has purchased for his people We can speak about the peace he has procured for his people. See this in verses 20 and 21 of Colossians chapter 1. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether there be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. 
Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us that we who once were far off have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.19 and the verses following, it says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That means he doesn't reckon their sins to be against their names any longer. And on that basis, he said, be ye reconciled to God. This is the gospel of reconciliation. The picture now is not the marketplace. It's not the courtroom. The picture now is a family. A family where the prodigal is away off in the far country, separate from the father's house. Or to change the analogy, a sheep lost outside the fold. Or again, a stranger and a foreigner and a child of wrath. All of these pictures are given in the New Testament. The prodigal son, the lost sheep, strangers and foreigners, the children of wrath, even as others, by the death of Christ on the cross, he has removed what the Bible calls the enmity between us and God. Enmity is the very opposite of friendship. When you are at enmity with someone else, that person is your enemy. He's your enemy. You're his enemy. The Word of God teaches us that we are alienated. Right here, it says it in verse 21. Alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works. But by his death on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ has removed the enmity between us and God. Which is why it says in Romans 5, verses 10 and 11... For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And the word really can be translated reconciliation. We've received the reconciliation. You know how it is when two people have been at loggerheads, when they haven't been speaking, when they've been as far apart from one another as it's possible to be. And then somehow there's mediation that takes place and the two are reconciled. And it's a beautiful thing when that happens. This has happened to every believer with the Lord. The Lord has adopted us into his family. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We're now the sons of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. By the blood of Jesus, God is reconciled to the sinner, and the sinner is reconciled to God. There is no distance, friend, between you and the Lord if you're in Christ. There's no reason why you can't draw near. There's no reason why you can't have fellowship and communion with God 
Because Christ has removed the enmity. Of course, those that are outside of Christ, they are still enemies of God. And that is why the Scripture tells us in Isaiah 59 that your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Not in fellowship with God. Not able to commune with God. Not able to really pray and to enter in with the Lord. But when we receive this salvation, we enter into the atoning work of Christ in time. And that's when salvation occurs, in time. We can speak about what God did in eternity. We can speak about what Christ did those thousands of years ago at the cross. That must become real to you. And that can only happen in time. As you turn from your sins to trust in Him. I've heard people preach what I consider to be a heresy. Which is that people before they came to that point of salvation were never really damned. They were never really going to hell. My Bible teaches differently. There is a time. There is a time when you're translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It has to happen if you're ever to be in glory. It's interesting to note when Paul was talking about his own conversion and that of some other people, he was giving greetings to the church at Rome, and he said about certain people, Romans 16, verse 7, Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, mark this, who also were in Christ before me. They were in Christ before me. That means there was a time when Paul was not in Christ. He was without Christ. Even as it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, it's true of all of us. At that time, ye were without Christ. And without God and without hope in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who once were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. We've been reconciled. There's a peace that he has procured for his people. So I say to those that are lost when I'm preaching the gospel on the basis of Scripture, be ye reconciled to God. You need to be reconciled to God. Yes, on the basis of the work of His Son. Absolutely. But it has to happen. You must turn from your sins. You must repent and believe the gospel. You must trust in Him in order to be saved. And if you're one of those that has come to Christ, the Lord has brought you by grace to believe on the Lord Jesus, to the saving of your soul, then give thanks. Give thanks for what the Savior has done for you. You know, as believers, we have much to praise God for. He has done great things for us, whereof we're glad. Back in the Cornish area of England 
there was a very unusual character, a preacher called Billy Bray. Billy Bray was a very ungodly man before he was converted. When the Lord saved him, it was a 180. His life was totally transformed. And Billy Bray was so full of the joys of the Lord, he would be virtually skipping along the road, singing little hymns, and he would just let out every so often a hallelujah. Just off the cuff like that. Because he was glad about what the Lord had done for his soul. It's good to be saved. And it's good to know that it's the Lord himself who has saved us. May God bless his word to our hearts for his own glory. Amen.